You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We're going to be talking this weekend about the servant of the Lord. And those songs, those passages in the prophecy of Isaiah that talk about this servant and the work um, that he was going to be doing, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 to 8, for instance, uh, today. We'll be looking at some other passages that give us some preliminary information on that and that enrich what we see when we look at Isaiah 42. In the afternoon, we're going to be looking at two passages, two other songs, uh, one of which is in Isaiah 49 and one of which is in Isaiah 50. In total, there are, in my view, five uh, servant songs. Uh, people tend, tend to see four, and then there's a big question mark over a fifth, but I'll just tell you what they are. So the first one is in the one that we're looking at this morning, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 8, the second is the second one we'll be looking at this afternoon, Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. The third song is Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9. And then there is Isaiah 53, which we'll be looking at tomorrow morning. That deeply moving picture of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the suffering servant that is described to us, throughout uh, the last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. But the last one is the one that people tend to not see as a song, and some people do. I'm in the camp of those who definitely see it as one of the songs. And that is Isaiah chapter 61. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, the servant says. When you look at the book of Isaiah, the servant comes in a dual way of interpretation based on the context where the word is mentioned. There is the national servant, Israel. Israel, as a nation, is referred to in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he is actually born, is also referred to as the individual suffering servant, who is the follower of and in complete service to the Lord God Almighty. There may be also a reference to Cyrus, a particular called individual, uh, a leader in the nations of the world who God used. Uh, He says of him in Isaiah chapter 41, I believe, I have called him in righteousness, talking about Cyrus. And it doesn't mean that Cyrus was a righteous person. It means I have called him to perform righteous work. Work that is in line with my righteousness and which will further and advance my particular purpose. So he's called him in righteousness. In one of the servant songs where Christ is referred to, it says again, I've called thee in righteousness. So the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be all about the righteousness of God. So I see five servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We looked uh, in Bible class together in Trinidad and Tobago at slavery in the Bible, and it is foundational to what we will see in the songs of the servant in Isaiah. 
Now we're going to go back to that initial key passage and my brother, Sam, uh, Sam Edwards, um, Sam, John, Uncle Junior Edwards, uh, actually uh, had a beautiful phrase that he used in connection with this. He noted when we talked about that in one of those uh, talks on slavery, that this comes right at the beginning of all of the instructions of Israel after they have just been delivered from what? Slavery in Egypt. And it's about slavery. And it's pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it all ties together wonderfully in this few set of verses, these few verses in Isaiah, Exodus chapter 21. So let's look at Exodus chapter 21 then. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 2 to 6 in this passage. It says, If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, now, th th those few words are jam-packed with spiritual content, if we think about it. Think about it. If you buy Hebrew, well, who had just bought all of Israel out of Egypt? God had done that. So, servant master, if you have someone who is now going to be in contract to you as an indentured laborer, remember whose position you're in. You are in the same position as I am with you and all of the nation of Israel. So be mindful of that in how you lead, look after, correct and discipline this servant that will work for you. You are in my position. If you buy a Hebrew servant. Now, some people interpret the, the word Hebrew to mean a crosser over with reference to the crossing over of the River Jordan that occurred when who came into the land? Abraham and Sarah, his wife. From Ur of the Chaldees, traveling all the way, crossing over Jordan into the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. So we have a word that talks about people who made a choice, who made a choice to become God's servants. That's what the word means. The word is also interpreted to mean something else. One from beyond. One from beyond. So he was someone who came from outside. He was an idolater. And he came from beyond to become God's servant, a worshiper of El Shaddai, ultimately of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our God. And if you, if you are going to buy this individual to be your servant, and that's that word bond slave, it's an indentured laborer, you sold your services so that you were the servant to this individual for a period of no more than six years. After the six-year period, you were to be released. And so there's a service that occurs. There is a master who stands in the position of God himself. There is a servant who stands in the position of all of us as servants and children of our Father, there is a servant who represents the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a servant there who represents who Israel 
ought to have been, but really struggled to and hardly ever lived up to being in being the servant of the Lord. And at the end, he shall have a choice. And the choice is, you go free for nothing, or you stay. It then says, if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. Now, brother, if we were apply, applying that to life today, if you leave the truth, don't expect your wife to do the same thing. She is still under her master. She is still someone who God gave to you and therefore she will remain. And of course, the point is, don't leave the truth. Don't walk away from your wife. Don't walk away from your kids. The brother in Christ cannot do that. Christ did not do that. We have to do our very best as husbands in God's truth, who are servants of the living God. And so it says, if, she, if he has received these things from the Lord, wife, and has had children, then if he's going to leave, he goes on his own. Now, why would a man do that? Well, to experience the so-called freedom of the world outside. The freedom to do what? To have what? To possess what? Remember what, what, what Kitson, Sister Reed's mother said. You know, Sister Reed, what, what she said, his mom. She said, there's, there's nothing out there. There's nothing. There's nothing out there for us. We think there's something for us. And you know, when you're young, there is. Oh, there's, there's money. There's, there's alcohol. There's sex. There's, 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 there's position. There's power. There's, there's your car. There's where you live. There's the respect of men and women. There's the, 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 the physical strength and vigor that you have. There's all these things. And then you grow older. The older you become, the more you realize what Solomon meant when he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all wherein he laboreth under the sun? What is the profit in the end of, of everything? So this man goes out free. He goes out free. He's free of what? Free of service, dedication to his master so that he can enjoy a brief questionable freedom outside of the boundary line of faith and belief and then it goes on and it says but if the servant shall plainly say he has to say it out loud it's a confession of faith he, he has to make like you and I make when we go into that water of baptism, he shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges, unto, unto the, uh, the, the leaders, the elders, but it's the word Elohim 
So it also means God. The master shall bring him unto God and shall bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Now, have you ever seen an awl? Have you ever seen an awl? Well, an awl is not like a little needle. These fine, refined things that are made in factories today that we sew things with. An awl is a big, fat needle. It's really big and fat. And the master takes that thing. And he doesn't make a little teeny tiny hole. It's a big hole in that air. And it hurts. Now, what is he associating that with? He's nailing it. He's nailing it to the house. He brings him to the door and he nails it to the doorpost. Now, think about that for a second. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Passover. The blood of the lamb that was daubed on the lintel on the doorpost. So the angel of death would see it and pass over that house, which is where the word Pesach comes from. Passover, passing over to move on to someone else whose house would now have death in it. It reminds us of something else too. God said, the Lord will build David a house. David who wanted to build him a house, God says no. Nathan, you go and tell him, I'm going to build him a house. I will build him a house. Because the house I will build is going to be both my house and his. And how's that going to be accomplished? By a servant who was bored, pierced, cut, hurt, when his body had nails driven through it. And in that process, and in his resurrection, and in the baptism of all those who believe, a house was brought into being. The house of David, which is now in construction, tied back to the previous house, but moving forward into the day when we'll see a literal configuration of that house with Jerusalem that comes down from above, the temple that is to be built on Mount Zion, to which all nations of the earth will come and worship the house. But for that house to be built, a cornerstone had to be created, and the ear of that cornerstone had to be pierced in the most painful way. And it says, and he shall serve the master forever. Now how will he serve his master forever? Well, he can't, because his master is human, just like him. So who's it talking about? Well, in point of fact, it's indicating that yes, he will serve him for the rest of his life. But surely there's a big finger pointing in the direction of Christ and the rest of us who are baptized, who will serve God, not for our, a short human lifetime, but forever. And so right up front, before the law is even fully articulated to Israel, God gives them something that is bigger than the law and the beginning of the law and a part of the law. It points forward to Christ. It points forward to us. 
It shows Israel the way that they ought to be, and it shows a future Israel how they will be, every one of them, being individuals who came out of trouble, out of turmoil, out of tribulation, out of failure, out of challenge, out of tears that have to be wiped out of their eyes forever and into eternal life when Christ returns to the earth. So the man's ear is bored. And because of the boring of his air, which he does in love, that's the motivating factor. Love for who first? Well, in our day and age, it would be for the wife first and the kids. But here it says no. It starts with the love of the master and the wife and the kids. The master is God. So our first love from this picture of slavery, of service, is about love. The first picture is motivated by love. That's important to remember when we look at the servant songs. Now we're going to go to Isaiah. But first, before we do that, we're going to take a peek at Psalm 40. And after that, we'll be into Isaiah. Psalm 40. Now in this, David is speaking, but David is moved by God to write. And the application of what he's writing is to himself to some degree, but primarily it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because verses 6 through to 11, these verses are cited in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 5 to 7, in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is presented by Paul as being a superior sacrifice in every way, shape, and form, in the body that God prepared for him, compared with the bullocks and goats and, 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 and so on, that were sacrificed under the law of Moses. He says in verse 6, David speaking and Christ speaking, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. You weren't looking for animals' bodies. Mine ears hast thou open. And your authorized version footnote will tell you that the alternate meaning of that word is, in the Hebrew, literally, digged. In other words, bored through, pierced. And so this, this man, David, is saying, Lord, I am your servant forever. And David's son is saying, you've pierced my ear, father. You've pierced my ear. Mine ear hast thou digged pierced, opened. And when we look through the other words, burnt offering and sin offering, hast thou not required? These things were so important under the law. But as David is writing, God is moving him to say, in Christ's own words, all of those things distracted sometimes Israel from what she was supposed to do, which was to come to God 
so that she would bore their ears and become servants to him fully. A nation of priests, the law also says. A nation of priests. And to become priests in Israel, those descendants of Levi who became priests, those who were descended through the family of Aaron, blood was put where? On their big toe to indicate that where they walked and how they walked would be informed and colored, tinted by the atonement, the shedding of the blood of the great servant of Yahweh. Blood was placed on the finger of their hand, their right hand, to indicate that the work, the best work, the most important work, would be work in service to God, who they were bondmen to. The blood then was also on their ear, indicating that they're listening to the word of God. They're hearing of it. The impact in it, on their brains, through their ears, would motivate how they lived, thought, felt, the directions they went in. Does that mean that they would be sinless people? And that God is looking for us to be sinless? No, there's only one man who did that. Only one who could do it. And he was strengthened by God to do it. And he did it for weak people like you and like me. Tiny ears hast thou opened, not just one ear. This servant's ears are both pierced. A servant in Exodus as described would have one ear pierced. But such is the extent of his service, its perfection, its fullness, that both of his ears have been pierced. Such is the extent of the excruciating pain that he endured, that we might have hope through him, that both of his ears are pierced. And he is better than any sacrifice that Israel ever gave. Then said I, lo, I am come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. What motivates this man? I delight. It is my delight. It is my joy. It is my joy. To do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. It's right in my heart, written in my heart. And that's what God will do with Israel, he says in Jeremiah. It will be written right in their hearts. And you and I are part of that people. And it will be written in our hearts fully. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Word, the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. And so he says, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Now, when you read those words, they'll remind you, surely, of Psalm 78 where the psalmist talks about the passing on of the faith from generation to generation to generation, 
They are not hiding from the generation that is to come what has been passed on to them from the previous generation. And we're reminded of Paul's words when he says, I have passed on to you what was passed on to me about the night that the Lord started this breaking of bread for us. So there it is. Christ never held back. He spoke God's word. He taught and he taught and he taught. We need teachers in our community. Young brother, if you are in your 20s or 30s or 40s, pick up your Bible and say yes to speaking. There are some people that think speaking is, speaking is nothing. It's worthless. It doesn't do anything. Well, they're right. You just need to, however, add the words for them to the end of that statement. It does nothing, it is, is it, it is nothing, and it helps nothing for them and in them. But the community needs brethren who are willing to take the time to study and to speak and to be doing the scary thing of doing a brand new study from scratch and giving it raw, realizing, you know, this is God's word. It'll do its thing. It'll do its work. It'll do what it does. It's not about me. It's not about you. It wasn't about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was all about his father. And so there's a way in which you and I, as servants to the Lord, are doing the work that Christ did. Not hiding his word. Not backing away from teaching and preaching it. Teaching and preaching in the community when we have those chances, talking about these things outside too, likewise. That's an area I always have to be working on. I'm much more comfortable speaking within our community than outside of it. And I'm not talking about presentations to, 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 to a group of people, for instance, in something like the Learn to Read the Bible seminar series. Where I struggle is when I'm sitting on the plane beside somebody, striking up a conversation about the truth. I don't want to get into a fight. I don't want conflict. I don't want there to be coldness. And I shouldn't care about those things. And what I'm trying to learn and have to learn is just comfort, talking to a taxi driver. This is where we're coming from, driver. And we just did this. And I'm a Christadelphian. Do you know what that is? There's a few things that we are looking for. And the biggest thing is the return of Christ. Boom. That's the conversation. Something that may stick in someone's head. Well, Christ wasn't like that, like me. What it says here is he hid not the righteousness within his heart. He did not refrain his lips. He declared the faithfulness of God at all times. And when you see him in the Gospels, it's not just to his brothers and sisters. It's not just to the disciples. It's to centurions. It's to fallen women sitting at a well. It's to a Syrophoenician woman who talks about Gentiles being like the puppies eating scraps underneath the table of Jews who are like full-fledged human beings dropping food under the table. He talked to Gentiles too and those Greeks that came to talk to him who Andrew told him about. I have not concealed thy loving kindness. So brothers, like the Lord, 
Our message not must not be a whiplash message. As a young man, that's what my messaging was about. Now you're saying yes, but you're still a young man. No, I'm 60 years old. I'm 60 in just a few weeks. January 9th, I'm 60 years old. So I know what it is to be a hot mouth, as we say in Trinidad and Tobago. Young speaker. All about whip cracking. This is what we ought to be and here's what we're doing. And what do we do? What do we do? This is what we do. We should never do this or that. All that is the stupidity of youth. It's all the ignorance of life and its fragility, of human nature and its proneness to sin. It's not until we have fallen into the muck and tasted mud in our mouth and felt the hurt and the pain of what we're made of and seen the all-consuming futility of life outside of the faith and how fully, fully oriented we are towards sin that we realize the foolishness of that kind of speaking. What we reveal to our brothers and sisters is what they need as they struggle is loving kindness and is truth. Now the truth may have correction in it, but it is full of love. And what motivated the servant to give himself to have his, his, his ear and his ears bored or pierced? Love. That's what has to be at the essential heart of our messages. When you are shouting at someone, you're not loving them at that point. You're angry with them. You have a, a case to bring against them. You've got something that you feel you need to discipline them with. And none of that is our role. None of that is our purpose. He did not withhold or conceal the loving kindness and truth from the great congregation. Right? He says, Lord, don't withhold your tender mercies from me. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed these things. He didn't just assume he had these things. When you see him struggling in the garden, it's not a man who is wordless and not thinking words as he struggles and sweats bloody drops off his face. It's a man crying out to God. You would have thought that Christ would know, well, God has my back. He's in my corner. He knows what I'm thinking. He's there for me. He's been there for me all my life. I don't have to ask him to be there for me. I don't have to pray to him. I don't have to reach out to him to help me. He's already helping me. That's what scripture says. And so that's, that's what I should assume. Christ shows himself to be human. Made of flesh and blood. He cries out when he is sweating. What made him sweat? Well, we don't know. And we surmise in so many different ways. To me. To me. What made him sweat was this. In the pain of what I'm about to suffer, will I deny God? Will I fail to honor him? Will I fail to uphold his righteousness, knowing I have human nature, knowing that I'm weak and frail, 
knowing that I've lived a sinless life up to this point in time, not for my glory, but for his glory and for my beloved wife and kids, who I'm a servant for, will I betray him in those last minutes, those last seconds? And he shouts out, and he shouts out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's saying, why have you forsaken me? And it could mean that at that point in time, God had withdrawn his spirit from the Lord Jesus Christ so that there were no special helps that he had. And at that moment, from then forward, he had to do what he did solely and completely on the strength of faith and belief, holding on to his father, and Christ finally shouts, it is finished. It's not that his life is ended only. It is that his work has come to a successful completion. Let thy loving kindness, thy truth, continually preserve me. And so brothers and sisters, we go to Isaiah chapter 42. And there, God says to Israel and to all Gentiles willing to listen, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, my elect, in whom my soul delights. Of Psalm 40, it will remind you of words that we will read later on. Words where the Lord Jesus Christ talks about his great delight in doing the word, doing the will of his Father. This reminds us of the delight of the Lord. He delighted to do his will. And God now says, I delight in this man. It gives me joy. It lifts me. It, it, not that God ever gets depressed, but it gives him an uplift to see the work of his servant. And he wants all Israel to be instructed by him. Behold, look at, focus on, pay attention to, is what the word behold means. Behold, pay attention to my servant, who I uphold. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. So, well, what does that word judgment talk to? Yes, there's going to be crucial, painful, hard judgment that the Gentile nations are going to experience in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also talking about what? The judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom will be the ultimate authority on, delegated to by God to rule over the earth. When the law of Yahweh will flow down holy Zion to water the nations of the earth below, and they will come up to worship God. When the madness of the nations will be healed, when all of their isms, communism, socialism, all of the things that we think are important to us, capitalism, materialism, 
all those things will be replaced. They'll be replaced with the law of Yahweh. That's the justice that will come. And it will be for all the Gentiles and for the Jewish people. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, what does that mean? Well, how, how did kings make their proclamations known to nations? The people that they ruled over in these ancient times. Well, people would go out there and proclaim the message. This is a message from the king. The king says this, you will do this, you will not do that. You are compelled to do this or go in this or that direction. And the word preach that's used in the Greek of the New Testament is the same word that was used for the proclamation of the messages of kings. That's what that word is. The word that's used for preach in the New Testament. Well, here it's saying to us, that's not the kind of message that's going to come out of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to be having messages you know, cried out in the streets. He's not going to be causing his voice to be heard in the street. It's not that kind of leadership. It's a different kind of leadership. This is a leadership. This is the leadership of the ultimate servant leader. A king who serves. A king who gives. A king who nurtures. A king who disciplines and corrects and gives righteous judgment and favors no one. It's always righteous. But his voice and messages will not be cried out like a typical ruler's messages were cried out in the streets. What also does it say? A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment in truth. Now, 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 now what, are, what are these then? Symbolic of the, the bruised reed, the, the, the bruised reed and the smoking flax. It's talking about those who are weak, those who are fragile. Now, come with me briefly and we'll take a look at Psalm 72, verses 2 and 4. Let's just take a, keep your finger in Isaiah. We'll come back, back to it. Psalm 72, verses 2 and 4. <clears throat> Starting with, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor, with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. That's the bruised reed. A bruised reed, a reed was, was, was you know, a, a kind of grass that was, was hollow 
um, when it when it grew up fully. It was very fragile. It could be used in useful ways, but it was also very fragile. It was bruised. It was incredibly fragile and quite liable to breakage. Well, that was the poor. Those were the people who were the broken in the land of Israel. When these kinds of prophecies were given by the prophets, they, they, they berated the leaders and the wealthy and the powerful for the, for the heel that they had on the throats of the poor. All the bruised reeds and all those who were like smoking flax, something that was so fragile, would go out so quickly and would turn to nothing through the activity of the powerful. What this is saying is, that's not the kind of king this is. This is going to be a suffering servant king. He will bring judgment into the earth. And he will not show favoritism the way your legal system currently works in Israel at the time that I'm writing, Isaiah is saying. But also our legal system today, Trinidad, Tobago, Canada, Britain, there's all kinds of gaps and deficiencies in our legal systems, all kinds of loopholes and ways out of the system, all kinds of people who get scot-free, mostly wealthy people who are able to get the kinds of lawyers who can get them off on a technicality. Because it was too long for the sentence to actually be uh, uh, actuated, well, this person should not be let go free. And it sometimes happens. But Christ, he'll be a different kind of judge. But there will be a gentleness in his judgment. There'll be a gentleness. And he will not add burdens upon the poor the way judges and leaders did in the days of Isaiah and today. Because we'll have a righteous leader and a righteous judge in the earth. Himself understanding what it felt like to be oppressed under the heel of Gentiles and Jews, stretched out on wood, hammered through with nails, spit upon, his beard torn off, laughed at, mocked, naked in front of everyone to see him. A man of such humility and grace that that man judges all of that background will come to bear in the compassion, the empathy, the clarity of mind, and the precision and accuracy of his judgment. You think Solomon acquitted himself as a great judge when he, when he dealt with those two prostitutes and said, okay, take a, take a sword and cut the baby in half so that it would be revealed who the true mother was? That's nothing compared to what this righteous judge will be like when he comes into his kingdom. God says in verse 4, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment where? In Israel? In the earth. So Israel is being given a, a message that a king who is raised up from the nation will rule over the whole earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. It's as if they're in anticipation of the law. They want the law. Who's the isles? Well, it's a generic term. It's not talking about islands. It's talking about all the nations of the earth outside of Israel, end to end. The extremity 
from north to south of all the nations of the earth, the isles, the countries of the Gentiles. That, that is what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. And it says, verse 5, Thus saith God, the Lord, he that created the heavens, stretched them out. He that spread forth the earth, that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Now we read about the love of the servant for his master back in Exodus 21. Now we're reading about the love of the master for his servant. I'll take you by your hand. I'll look after you. I will take care of you. I will make you a covenant of the people. And who's the people? Well, Israel. But it also extends to the Gentiles and for a light to those living in darkness, the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, those who cannot see, those who don't understand, and also those who are literally infirm, as symbolized in physical blindness, to bring out the prisoners. And we think of it, there's that image that hops across some people's minds about Bastille and the freeing of the prisoners when the French were all about liberty, fraternity, and equality, all the nonsense that was unleashed with the French Revolution that served to advance God's purpose, but not by godly means. To open the prisons and let out the prisoners, think of all of those who unjustly are in prison around the world, brothers and sisters around the world in prisons, in Iran, in China, in Vietnam, in other countries where they've experienced all kinds of prejudice against them because of their faith. But this is also talking about those imprisoned in human nature, in lives of sin and darkness, who need the light of the gospel and God's truth that comes from Christ, who is himself a light to the Gentiles and to them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So God has a servant. The work of the servant is about righteousness. I've called you in righteousness. He is someone who God will raise up, God will uphold, God will hold his hand. Well, whose hand do you hold? A little child's hand. Someone that is weak and frail. God is saying, I'm going to hold your hand. You're going to be my child, and you're going to be my servant. He says he's going to be someone who's going to save Jews and Gentiles. He's going to remove the blindness of those who are on the earth and those who are imprisoned by fear, by torture, by sin, by death. That's the servant of the Lord. So wonderfully and richly described to us in these few verses in the first song of the servants.
There was such good discussion in the end of uh, the session that we had this morning. Um, there were so many good comments that were made about the Lord Jesus Christ, his struggles, uh, the time of fear that he passed through, the faith that he had, the compassion, the empathy, um, the struggles that we have in keeping uh, a balanced uh, interaction with the world around us so that we're in it but not of it, and at the same time, resisting the urge to be pulled into it by those strong influence and influencers that, we, uh, that we're faced with. But there were so many good thoughts that were expressed that really tie in to some of what we will continue to look at this weekend. It all thematically uh, focuses in on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the work that he performed. His role as a servant, our role as servants, and Israel's role of failed servant in the past, but successful and honored servant in the future in God's kingdom, when they will once again have an incredible revitalization as a nation and will again be God's people, a special people in all of the earth and recognized as such all around the world. We begin then at verse 1 in Isaiah chapter 49, the second of the servant songs, the five servant songs, um, as I understand it. And it begins with uh, a, a commanding uh, statement to the Gentiles of the earth. Listen, O isles, unto me. Hearken, ye peoples, from far. So this is, this is to galvanize the attention of the nations who are watching, who are listening. And it's this time the servant of the Lord speaking. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And so before Christ was even born, in fact, even in this chapter, chapter 49, the Lord God is making mention of the Lord Jesus Christ and having him voice his thoughts in this chapter, though he's not even yet uh, come into being. He's not even yet being born. He, th these words remind us of the words that were spoken uh, of Jeremiah, who God tells he knew him in the womb before he was even born, he knew it. And Paul says the same thing too, effectively, as he writes about himself in his letters, that, that God knew him before he was even born. He called him even before he was born. Galatians 1 verse 15 is, is uh, one of those uh, verses that, uh, that gives us that sense that Paul was aware that God had his eye on him to play a purposeful role in the development of the truth, in the advancement of God's plan, uh, particularly with respect to the preaching to the Gentiles and the strengthening of the Gentile ecclesias. So God knew Christ before he was born. God knew Paul before he was born. God knew Jeremiah before he was born. And in every instance, in every instance, God had work for each of these people to do. God knows every one of us. He's known every one of us from before we were even born. The way life looks to some of us, it's as if we fell into the truth by mistake at some point in time, 
by chance happening upon a talk or a Christadelphian or someone related to a Christadelphian or an article in a newspaper or an advert of some type. And through that means we, were, we came into the truth. Well, it, it began even before that. God already had us in mind before we were even born, before our parents were born, before any of our ancestors were born. It's the way God's mind works. He knew of us. He knew what we would do, what his plan was for each of us, what we would have to go through in order to become his children, what we would have to go through and endure through to stay and remain his children. And he knows what our work is going to be now and in his kingdom. God created Adam and Eve even in the days of paradise, the days of the garden in all of its beauty, in all of its freedom from sin and death. Even in those days before sin and death, God made him for relationship and for work. Adam was to work. He was to labor. He wasn't to be idle. He wasn't to be sitting back and not doing anything. He wasn't to have other people doing what needed to be done. Of course, the only other person earlier on was Eve, but then came Cain and Abel, and then a multiplicity of children after that. Adam was to work. He didn't get to relax. So we are known by God ahead of time, and we're marked out for work that has to be done. And you may not know what your work is going to be in the kingdom, but you have work that can be done today. So you think to yourself, you're an older sister. What work is there for you to do? Well. There's the vastly important work of praying for your ecclesia, praying for families, praying for marriages, praying for brothers and sisters around the world. You just think of those desperate and terrified brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, some in China, some in India, some in Pakistan, some in the African continent, some in Central America, South America. There are dangers and troubles and fears that face our community all around the world. If it's not persecution, imprisonment, and abuse, it's COVID-19, sometimes COVID-19 that is ineffectively controlled by the governments in which our brothers and sisters live. So there's so much that can be done in prayer. There is nothing more powerful you can do for your community, for your ecclesial family, than to pray for it. Nothing, nothing at all. Because prayer entails complete and utter reliance on the Almighty. You hear that word? Almighty. You are never lasting. He is everlasting. You have no might at all. He is Almighty. El Shaddai, Yahweh, Elohim, Eloah, whatever the terms are used of him, Father, Abba, in the end, he is the mighty one that we call upon, who knew every one of us before we were born, and to whom we reach out to not only for our own needs, but the needs of our brothers and sisters, our suffering brothers and sisters, in our ecclesias and worldwide. And a sister, an old sister, could do that. She may not be able to lift a 200-pound weight or lift a table or move around chairs. Her arthritis, her rheumatism, you know, the trouble she may be having with chronic illness may make it difficult for her to do the physical 
efforts, the toil efforts that involve hands. But prayer is nothing mightier than prayer. He knew us before we were born, and we have work to do today, even the weakest, the frailest of us, and in his kingdom, will have an abundance of work to do. He made mention of my name before I was even born. Well, who would God be talking to about the Messiah before he was even born? Well, he'd be talking to the angels. He'd be talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'd be talking to Adam and Eve, and in his cursing of the serpent, talking about his son, the seed of the woman. So this name, this name of the Messiah, of the Holy One who would come, would be named well in advance of his birth. When a young man named Joshua became servant to Moses and then leader of the nation of Israel, God's name for his own son, Yahshua, was already being named. So Christ says, in advance of his birth, he made mention of my name. Do you not think that your names, that our names are named in heaven? That God does not hear our names, that the Lord does not hear our names? Of course he hears our names. Surely if there are angels, if there are angels that are the ministers of salvation and looking after us in our daily lives, struggling with us sometimes the way that that angel had struggles with leaders upon the earth and had to call in help from others because we are so, so strong-willed in our sinful ways, in our human nature, in our personalities, that even the angels have help, but surely they must mention our names to each other. And God is aware of our names. And of course, figuratively, there is a book of life written is it a literal book? Is it a database? It is, all, is it all retained in the mind of God himself, which is the template for anything we have that records things such as, such as pages and, and words on a page? The, the original template is the mind of God. His name, our names, all known. His name named upon us one day, names that we shall have in his kingdom. He knows us. Now, what's the message for us that comes out of that? Your life is not a random, freewheeling, multiplicity of chaotic, random events. It isn't. God is in overall control. Are there things that happen that just happen as, as, a, as, 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 as a result of actions that we take? I lift this pen and drop it. Did God make that happen or have something to do with that? No. That is just the operating of the, of the, of the, of the laws of gravity, of, of, of physics, etc. But in general terms, those important things that go on in our lives, including our, our, including our times of trouble and grief and loss and despair and, and agony and the times that we go through that we would rather not have to go through, those things are known to God. He knows us by name. He knows what's going on in our lives. And he cares deeply and loves us deeply. He loves us to the extent that he gave us his only begotten 
son. And remember, that's what our elderly sister quoted in that little film clip, that precious clip we looked at at the beginning of our day together. He loves us, and we are not on our own and living in a world where things happen just randomly to us without him caring or overseeing what's going on. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders and the rulers of the nation felt the sharp edge of the tongue of the Lord Jesus Christ, not raised in, in querulous self-justification and anger and rage, but to divide asunder between truth and untruth hypocrisy and play-acting, and the reality of what they were made of. Christ is the Word made flesh. In his mouth is a two-edged sword. The book of Revelation tells us that as he rides forth on that horse, dressed in garments that have been tinted with blood, his mouth has a sharp sword in it. His words are powerful. They have the power to give life and to give death. Remember what he did to a tree? That was just a tree. He spoke to the tree. The consequence of his words was the drying up of that tree, ultimately. We can be pretty certain that since all things were delivered into Christ's hands, that the direction of history, since his Resurrection has been, in many ways, largely in his hands. His words have directed history through the labors of the angels. He has walked about in the midst of the ecclesias and sees what takes place in all of our ecclesias, all the struggles we're having, the aging in the ecclesias, the brand new young ecclesias in so many parts of the world that had no ecclesias, a uh, hundred years ago. His words continue to operate. His words are sharp. And they have an edge to them. But his words are also gentle and encouraging. The words of his mouth come out of a mouth that like, is like a sharp sword like a sharp sword. And we remember that description of the word of God in Hebrews, which talks about it being sharper than a two-edged sword. The word of God is quick. It's living. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the word of God is. It cuts us to the bone. So much, as our, so much of our life is from our childhood into our adult lives. The construction of a mask that we make to help us to have significance in the society in which we live. It might be the mask of the successful man or woman it might be the mask of someone who has a job that is 
high on the totem pole, the hierarchy of an organization. It might be the mask of someone who is a successful person from a financial perspective. It might be the mask of a community leader in the community that we live in, the neighborhood that we live in. But sometimes, you know, it's the mask of a brother or sister who has no faults, no weaknesses, no times of complete failure, no stumbles, who tries to give the, the appearance of being the right kind of brother or sister. We're a godly person. And sometimes in the wearing of that mask, we can stretch forth a hand with a finger pointed in condemnation of a brother or sister who in their life have publicly fallen down. Yet behind the mask that we construct is the reality of sin and failure, frailty, weakness, all of those temptations that we too easily and so often yield to secretly and quietly. Well, you know what the Word of God does? It disrupts that mask. It cracks it open. It gets under the mask and it causes us pain. It's put, it puts lesions and wounds in our hypocrisy and in our play-acting. It points up to us the lie that sometimes we can be living or the, the inconsistencies of life, the behaviors, the words that we speak that are not consistent with a heart that is the loving heart of a brother or sister who is following Christ, the man of peace, a man who talked about love and compassion, a man who did not hide from his brothers and sisters the loving mercies, the tenderness of his Father. The Word of God is wonderful, glorious, so much depth to it. We will never, ever plumb its depths, depths any of us, not one of us. Just when you think you've got passages nailed down pat, a day or two or a year or two or a decade or two later, you read it again or hear something from someone and realize you only partially understood what you thought you knew well. It doesn't just give us wonderful things to study. It provides us with a painful mirror to look into. A mirror that shows us who we truly are and can be at our best, but at our worst likewise too. And th that is why that sword divides asunder. It takes that integration together of play-acting and reality, and it pulls it apart so that we can see those elements of ourselves that are play-acting, that are not real, that need work, that need continual effort to change, to alter, to bring under the control of God. It takes that stuff and it differentiates it between the truth of where we might be living according to God's will. Behaviors we might be beginning to show or showing that are consistent with who he wants us to be. If those things are not pulled apart, it's like walking around with cancer 
twining itself all through our organs, metastasized throughout our body and killing us. So the, 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 the separation between truth and untruth in us that is so painful, that rocks us to our core, that embarrasses us, that shames us, that wounds us, it is like chemotherapy. The word of God cuts going in and it cuts going out. It's two-edged. It is sharp. It is focused. And it is deadly to pretense and untruth. So we need it absolutely. And the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ was like a sharp sword. It was gently used, used to help, to encourage, to strengthen, to take the wounded, to take bruised reeds and smoking flax and give them comfort. When that woman taken in adultery, where was the man? It was the woman that they brought to him. They thought that that would color his judgment and sway him in a direction that would allow him to be self-condemning according to their traditions and the predominant attitudes of his society. But after they had all walked away when he wrote whatever he wrote in the dust, he asked the woman where, his, where her, her oppressors, the people that condemned her, were. And they were all gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. If there was ever a broken reed or a smoking piece of flax, it was that woman. He says, go and sin no more. There was empathy. There was compassion. There was understanding that he had never having sinned once in his life, just through observation of himself and his own frailty and weakness because of his nature and the vast empathy that this godly man had with all of broken humanity. His mouth was sharp as a two-edged sword. But that sharp two-edged sword will also be used to break the rebellion of the nations when he returns to the earth. Revelation 19.15 says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So that same mouth that healed, that helped, that nurtured, that upbuilt, will smite down the rebellious nations of the earth that will come against him, that will come to fight against the anointed of the Lord, that will come to break him and will fail. And so, well in advance of his existence, Isaiah writes, moved by the Lord, about what the words of Christ, the Messiah, will be like. The suffering servant is an utterly eloquent man because of the vast resources of his word, God's word, in his heart and mind. And because of the fact that God has given him a mouth with which to heal and to strengthen. He goes on and he says, In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. 
and we won't have the time to look at it now, but there's a passage in Isaiah that is a bit of a contrast to that, and that's in chapter 30 at verses 2 to 3, where Israel is rebuked, the country, Judah, is rebuked for trusting in the shadow of Pharaoh. What the suffering servant is saying is, I am not protected by the shadow of a man or any human being. I am protected by and in the shadow of the hand of the Lord. Now contrast those two shadows. Pharaoh stands up and shows himself to be full of worldly might and casts a shadow down upon the people of God. This shadow is the shadow that comes from being held in someone's loving, protective hand. The same hand that God said, I will hold your hand. In his reference to Christ as a child previously. And so the child says, I'm in the shadow of my father's hand. He's protecting me. He's given me a tongue that has eloquence. And he's made me like a polished shaft. Now, what was the polished shaft? It was the special arrow in the quiver. It was the truest arrow. It was the deadliest arrow. It was the special arrow. You didn't pull on that one first. It was last out of the quiver because it was special. What Christ is saying is, I'm a polished shaft, a special arrow kept in good condition until that specific time when it needs to be used, when it needs to be used. And arrows are used of God's judgment in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 23 and verse 42. It's also used of the deadly words of the wicked in, Psalms, in Psalm 64 verses 3 to 4. But here, in the context here, Christ is a polished arrow. So this ties to that, that warlike image of him that we see in Revelation 19, where the quotation comes from that we just looked at previously. In his quiver hath he kept me close, not hid me, kept me close, the revised version says. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, who's the Israel that he's referring to? Well, it's not Israel yet in the sense of the nation of Israel, but it has a flow-through effect to them because the Israel that he's talking about is the singular representative of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, Israel, the nation, will become like this amongst the nations in his kingdom. She will be his polished shaft among the nations, that special nation, that preserved and precious nation among all the nations of the earth. Then he says, Then I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, my work, my recompense, 
is with my God. Now, what could we read into that? Yes, Isaiah is writing and he's probably feeling a sense of failure in his nation. The words he's written, the messages he has preached, well, they've had little to no effect, no sustainability, no continuing and permanent change, viewable and discernible in the people to whom he has preached. But it could also apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his work served the nation of Israel largely and was rejected by the nation. And yet there were pockets of people to whom he preached in the Gentile world that were a great comfort to him. They comforted him. Remember that village in Samaria that started off with the woman at the well that no well-brought-up Jewish man would even think to talk to, let, her, let alone sit down and ask if she could pour some water out for him to give it to him to drink. Out of what? Something she would have drunk out of. If there's anything that could make you unclean, it was that. She believed in it. The village she came from believed in it. The Syrophoenician woman believed in him. The Greeks that came to visit him and see him and wanted to talk with him believed in him. A Roman centurion may have believed in him when his servant was healed from afar by the Lord Jesus Christ. There were Gentiles who every time somebody from their number believed in him just lifted his heart. He healed a bunch of lepers and only one turned around and thanked him, praised God. It was a Samaritan. So, these words then speak out the thoughts of Jesus at some point in time where maybe he wrestled with the effectiveness of his work. And it says, and now saith the Lord God, that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. So you see, the Israel he's talking about in verse 3 can't be the whole nation. It's an individual. Because he says in verse 5, he formed me to bring Jacob again to him. That's also a part of the work of Christ. Not just to give the redeemed eternal life, but to reach out to and save the nation of Israel, as we're told in Zechariah. And then the Gentiles of the earth, all peoples of the earth. He is to bring them to him. And though Israel be gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. And my God shall be my strength. So what he's saying is this. I have a job to do. Boy, I've been doing this work and sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I wonder if the work I'm doing is of any value. But I know this. It is part of my work to save these people. I know this. I know that I, though dishonored among men, that's what the word glorious means. Honorable. I am honorable in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what the Revised Version translates it as. Though dishonored by my people, and he will be described as a man greatly dishonored. I am honored and honorable in the eyes of the Lord. 
I'm not seen as a sinner, as someone who is included amongst the wicked and criminals, as I will be when I am crucified. In his eyes, I'm honorable. And my God is become my strength. And he said, this is God answering, the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps in his, his exhaustion, remember sometimes he was so tired he would sleep in the middle of a storm in the back of a boat. How do you achieve that? Being dog-tired, so wiped-out tired, you don't even know you're in a storm. And God says to him, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Is, get, is that getting you down? Is that making you feel a little bit a little bit depressed? Are you feeling a degree of sadness when you look at the work and how it's coming? Let me give you something else to think about. Is, is, that, is, is it too light a thing for you to do that? And to restore the preserved of Israel? I will also give you to be a light of the Gentiles that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You're not just going to save them. Don't let that work get you down. You're going to save the whole earth. You're going to save Jew and Gentile and all the nations of the earth by giving them a kingdom and ruling over a kingdom that will be greater than anything that they've seen, where they will for the first time experience truth, justice, safety, freedom from crime, where you will have those that are redeemed and Jew and Gentile, your bride, your children, as it were, and see them alive and working at your side and throughout the earth, I'm giving you all that for the joy that was set before Christ. He was able to bear up under his sufferings. This is a picture of the kind of joy he would draw on from those vast reserves of scripture in his mind, in his heart, God had said to him, servant of mine, son, you're not just going to save Israel. And I know it may look like you haven't saved Israel yet, but that work is going to have its outcome. And it's not just going to be them. You're going to save the Gentiles also. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou, is, thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see thee shall arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. He hath chosen thee, is what it should say, and what the revised version corrects the English to become. So, so what does that just told us? This is going to be a man of sorrows, despised, rejected, acquainted with sickness with grief. He's going to be someone that looks like he's of no account, inconsequential. He'll be seen as a person with no beauty, nothing desirable about him. 
He will be abhorred of the nation. But kings will bend their knees before him. Kings and priests or a kingdom of priests. King priests will reign beside him. And he will be the great one in the midst of them. So this, this is all intended to comfort who? The original hearers of this message from Isaiah. Isaiah. Gentiles who would read these words coming into the truth after. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you and me. This is in simple terms. A picture of if things are going really badly, they look like everything is falling apart. Your family is a circus. Everything looks like it is a tragedy on steroids. Slow moving, fast moving, falling apart at the seams. You yourself can barely hold yourself together emotionally, spiritually, morally, physically. That message is for you and for me. Because it says, son, daughter, no matter how bad things look right now, I will get you through this. I will get you into my kingdom. And you will be among those royals that will help to rule the kingdom. Because that is who I know you to be before you were born. When you were in your mother's womb. Before your mom even existed. That's who you're going to be. So the words to the suffering servant talk about his work. Talk about who he is going to be. Talk about what he is going to become. What he's going to go through. He talks about us in the same way likewise. And so we go to the next song. The next song of a suffering servant. And we find that in chapter 50 beginning of verse 5. Look what it says. Look at all the echoes back and forth through the word of God. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. Now that word open is a different word to the word that is translated as an alternate translation, digged. That is the word pierced in Exodus 21 and in Psalm 40. This word means to open wide, to open wide. But there's a, re a relationship between the two things. The opening of the, of the ear of the servant, literally the piercing of the ear, the atonement, baptism, is tied, is it not, to the opening of the ear, the listening that comes as a result? The Lord God opened mine ear and I was not rebellious. I listened to his word. I didn't turn away. I didn't say, no, I'm not going to. One of the first things one of our little girls learned to say, she must have been one and a bit, when her mother would ask her to do something, is she would say in response, no, I not. And no, I not is, an alive, is alive and well in every one of us from the day we were born to the day we die. We are no, I not people. By nature. But this man, he was not rebellious. His response, when his father asked him and showed him through scripture what he was to do is, 
Yes, I will. I turned my back, not away. I didn't turn away backward. I gave my back to the smiters. Now, beatings were for criminals or for fools. Now, we're told that in Proverbs 10, verse 13 and 19. And, uh, sorry, 10, 13 and chapter 19, verse 29. And in Proverbs 26, verse 3. It was also the punishment that was administered to, 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 to those who were condemned to death, such as the Lord Jesus Christ and the scourgings that he received. It says, I gave my back to the smiters. He never turned his head and, say, and said to those that were whipping him, do you know who my father is? Do you know who I am? Both of you are dead right now. Never did he say such a thing. He gave his back to the smiters. And my cheeks to them that pulled off the hair. The only thing we know, the only thing we know about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Tall, short, dark, fair. Medium built, heavy built, skinny. Nothing. We don't know anything except... And he had a beard. We know that in Psalm 22, he looks down and it says he can tell his ribs. That means he could count them. You know, the word bank teller, bank teller, is related to that word tell. I can look down and I can see my ribs exposed through my rib cage. So we know that physically what had happened in his scourging was that it exposed his rib cage. As he was stretched out on the cross, he could look down and see exposed tissue in his ribs. But the only thing we have about what he physically looked like was that it was a beard. Was, his, was the hair curly? Was it straight? Was it a long, very lengthy beard? Was it short? Was it wild? We don't know. We just know he had a beard. Why is that? Because if we knew, this is the way our mind operates. If we knew he was tall, then we would think, well, the tall people are more righteous and godly than short people. If he was short, well, sorry, you're tall. You're not a godly man. Because short people, Christ was short. He, therefore, he was, he, he, was, he, was, he was godly and short, so you can't be godly at all. If he was fair, we would think, well, fair people, lighter complexion people, are more godly and righteous than darker. We're not told any of that deliberately. So that none of those stupid notions would come into our minds. None of them. Every one of them. A foolish and ridiculous human idea. But he allowed them to tear the hair off his cheek. If you have a beard, take your fingers and try and pull off three hairs all at once. Tell me what it feels like. They ripped his beard off his face. Think of the damage that would do with his skin. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. His service involved complete and utter humility and complete and utter humiliation. Why didn't I do those things? Because I trusted in God.
that he would help me. Our brother's old mother trusted in God that he would hold her hand when she crossed that street. So Christ says, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded? Shall I not be confounded? Therefore, I have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Whatever short term there is, he did not despise the shame of the crucifixion. He saw it as necessary, as part of what he had to go through, so he could identify himself completely with humanity and with his God. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ setting his face like a flint, perhaps, to go to Jerusalem. And the, the brethren, the disciples, seeing that and realizing that he was going into danger, but there was no dissuading him. He would not change direction. He was going to Jerusalem. I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is there that justifies me. The Lord, though he is condemned as a sinner, God is near. Even in that process of condemnation, who will declare him to be righteous, who will justify him, who will justify him. Who will contend with me? Who's going to overturn the judgment of that judge? No one, none of them. It doesn't matter how I'm condemned. That's for the moment. What matters is what God thinks of me. So Isaiah writes, let us stand up together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. So what he's saying is, all right, you're going to condemn me? Come and condemn me. You think you are righteous, judges of Israel. You can't condemn me. I am sinless. And your condemnation and the law with its built-in self-destruct mechanism is going to fall apart because it will have condemned a, a righteous, godly servant of Yahweh. And so will have demonstrated itself to be temporary and flawed in the end. Something to be rolled up like a scroll and put away and replaced by something greater. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all, like the law, shall wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant that walks in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon, lean upon, trust upon, stay upon his God. That's for us. This song Though it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all about us. It's all about Israel. It's all about who we are today and who we shall become in the future. Our troubles, our trials, those blistering tragedies that take chunks off our heart and lower us down to our knees and incapacitate us are all for our good. We don't always know why 
We are the worst interpreters of why it is for someone else. But we know this in the end. God is at work. Nothing happens to us by chance. Our God is with us. He's holding our hand. He is our help. We can stay upon him. We can lean on him when we're not strong, knowing that he's with us. Thank you, brother. This morning we remember the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, the preeminent and the fulfilling servant of the Lord. And we're going to look at the two last songs, the two last servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. The first passage we're going to be looking at is one that is quite heartbreaking, but it's necessary. It was the means through which God fulfilled his plan of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 begins with the words, Who hath believed our report? And as we mentioned earlier this weekend, the success of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Jewish people that he preached to was very, very limited. It was not a great uh, deal or a great amount of people that believed uh, that were baptized and that stayed with him. It was only a small amount of people that were in that upper room, 120 people. Now that may sound like a, a, a large group of people in a room, but when you consider the multitudes that had heard him speak, the 5,000 that he had fed, etc., you begin to realize how small the results were and how they looked at that point. Now, all that would change as time went by. And though there was only a, a handful of people that believed and that stayed with and after he left um, in the truth, we know that when the kingdom comes, the entire earth will believe the truth. Those after the cleansing of those who will rebel and refuse to submit to Christ and his authority. Who hath believed our report? Isaiah is being told by God right in this chapter that there will not be many people who will listen to and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, surely that was a comfort to Isaiah himself, who did not have many people listen to him or believe what he said or take heart. And that, that core of his message was believe in God. Hold on to him. Trust in him. Not in Egypt. Not in any other country. Not in the power of your arm. Not in horses. Not in walls of forts and fortifications. Trust in Yahweh. Trust in God. Trust in the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground. The Lord Jesus Christ came out of dry ground. He came out of Israel at the, at the bottom of its experience. It was under the domination of the Romans. It was divided and 
fractured and splintered as a society. There were internal religious wars that occurred on an ongoing basis. There were the rich and the wealthy who were worldly and were Sadducees and paradoxically were the priestly families. They were the least believing in the country of Israel. And the poor were oppressed by heavy taxes, by heavy burdens that were laid upon them, by those who were the religious uh, lawyers, uh, theorists, and teachers of the time. It was a difficult dry ground out of which this tender plant sprang. And he came out of the dead stock of Jesse, didn't he? It looked like it was dead until God brought it to life again, and he came from it. He hath no form, no comeliness. There was nothing about him that, uh, that appealed to the naked eye. His beauty was appealing to the eye of faith. And it was only people who had faith that saw him in his full and true glorious beauty, not the passing beauty of flesh that is beautiful one moment and then only a few moments later, all that beauty is gone. It was the beauty of character. It was the beauty of God in him. It was the beauty of the word made flesh to such a degree that he was like a walking, talking, living, breathing Bible. That was his beauty. But we, the Jewish people speaking in this chapter, we looked at him and we didn't see anything. There's nothing there that looked kingly, looked beautiful, looked attractive, looked compelling. Not a thing. There's nothing in him that we thought was worth anything, that we would go after him and follow him. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now think about the first kings of Israel. Saul, terrifically handsome, head and shoulders above the rest of the nation. David, an incredibly handsome man, and so on. So physical beauty was something that people sought in their leaders, and he had none whatsoever. None whatsoever. And where did this beauty come from in these kings? Well. They were the sons of beautiful women that had been married by their fathers. And so that physical beauty came through. David, in his beauty, marries beautiful women, and then good-looking children come as a result. And in the minds of everyday people, there's a translation of physical beauty into some kind of moral capacity that often does not exist. And we saw that over and over in the lives of the kings. Christ had no physical beauty. None. There was nothing that made him attractive to anyone who looked at him. And not only was that the case, but in the atonement, in its fulfillment, he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, what does all that mean? He was someone who was looked down upon. He was someone who was a person of contempt to those who looked at him. He was rejected of men. And that, that, that word, 
means that he was he was forsaken forsaken he was a man of sorrows and those sorrows involve pain to be sore means grief of mind grief of heart the lord jesus christ was a man who understood sorrow now it was said in the discussion yesterday that christ was not a superman no he wasn't he felt he felt fear he got frightened he he he, he felt sorrow he could feel disappointment but he also had great joy great faith great reliance on god he he stayed on god he leaned on him so that he believed with all his heart that his god was with him he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted he was well aware of he had experienced grief now what's that word grief illness we sometimes think of the lord jesus christ almost as a child all the way through to the atonement who never got ill well that's not what this is saying this is saying he was acquainted with illness he understood what it was to be human to get sick to be disappointed to feel sorrow to feel frightened he understood all those things thus how could he be an appropriate high priest for us he also himself likewise was tempted in every way that we are tempted he knew what it is to be flesh and how weak and frail it is he knew what it was to feel the things that we feel and it says and we hid as it were our faces from him the revised version says and as one from whom men hide their faces who do men hide their faces from men that are horrible to look upon men whose injuries might be so terrific in their extent that we draw away from them men that are sick when somebody comes too close to you on the road and you're walking in these covid days what do you do you turn away your face from them to move away from them so we can we can understand that today better than ever what 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 kind of people did israelites turn away from lepers people that they saw as unclean people they could get sick from people who the, they saw with a degree of detestation and contempt and fear and fear it, it, it says it says we esteemed him not he was despised and we didn't see any value in him we didn't respect him one bit surely israel says with realization he has borne our sorrows our griefs yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of god and afflicted he got what he deserved he was punished as an evil doer you see that word stricken it is used in connection with leprosy in leviticus chapters 13 and 14 over 50 times 
50 stricken with leprosy. We looked at him and we saw him as stricken. All of that brokenness to his flesh when he was when he was beaten up, when they put the thorns on his head and then hit him on his head. When they scourged him, we looked at all of that mess, that mess of bloody gore. And it was like leprosy to us. We turned away from that and said, that, I don't want anything to do with that. But God was saving us through that. He who understood what we are made of, who felt what we felt, he, he was walking, carrying that cross, and bearing up under the weight and burden of the atonement for us. We just thought God was punishing this man as an evildoer. He was smitten of God, and the affliction he was going through was his fault. But that's not true. We realize now he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, all the wounds, all those bloody, gory lesions caused on his body in the crucifixion and in the scourging and in the beatings, with his stripes, we are healed. First Peter chapter 2 says the following words around verses 21 to 25. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Do you see the repetition to intensify the meaning? Who? And it could have just gone from who to bear our sins on the tree. But Peter is at pains to hammer home the intense reality of this, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness and complete, live under righteousness. And what we have here is a picture of what? Complete identification. A man who healed us how? Did it take away all of our sins completely so that we never sin again? Did it remove our mortality? No, but what he did was he removed a corruptness of mind, a corruption of thinking, an attitude of fleshly thinking that says, I can do it for myself. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I am powerful and I can make it through my life doing what I can do, being the greatest that I can be and achieving all kinds of things, including saving myself. This tells us, and Peter tells us, Christ bore our sins 
with his stripes, our thinking is healed. In this very chapter, Israel is saying, this is what I thought when I saw him. But now my thinking is healed. And I see what he was and who he was. You can almost look at this as the response of Israel in that time that Zechariah describes when Jesus comes to the Jews and they say, where did these wounds come from? And he tells them, from his friends, from his own people. And this, this could be the response of the Jewish people. Look at what he did for us. Look at what we thought about who he was. We are our father's children with the same rebelliousness, the same attitude of mind. He went through all of this so we might be healed and be saved. How did he carry our sins? By bearing in himself the same nature that we bear. Every one of us is born with a sin factory inside of ourselves. It's there with all the machinery, all the equipment, and then at a certain age, the conveyor belt starts up and you can hear the machinery making noise as sin begins to be crunched out and we are now responsible for what we do. And the sin keeps coming out on the conveyor belt over and over, coming through, coming through, as the sin factory, the machinery and the equipment generates out of our mortality and out of our bias and proneness to sin, actual sin. Wrong thinking, wrong words, and wrong actions. Christ had all the equipment in him. All the equipment. All the equipment that you and I have in us. That sin factory built in our hearts. It never produced a single product. We overproduce. We never produce just a little. We are always producing sin. He didn't produce a single sin. As an older man now, the things that amaze me more than anything else about Scripture are the love of God for the unlovable and the sinlessness of Christ and what it took for him to do that. He wasn't a superman. Greater power means greater temptation. An elevated quantity of God's spirit did not mean that it was easier for him. It was harder for him than it could ever have been for any of us. That he remained sinless for us. That his father might be glorified. I'm going to drop down a few verses now to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
he shall see the travail, all the work, all the labor, all the effort of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant declare righteous, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How could it please someone to put his child through terrible pain? How, 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 how could it please him? <laughs> you remember Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, at verse 6. There it is written, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife and they went, both of them, together. Verse 6 of this same chapter, Isaiah 53 says, And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That word laid in Abraham's laying of the wood and in the Lord's laying of the iniquity of mankind on his child's shoulders was not an indication of wrath, of anger, of rage that had to be satisfied of rage that had to be transferred from all of humanity to a proxy in one man so that it could be meted out upon him in all of its fury. That, that's not all God. That's not your God and my God. Ours is a God of love. Not a God peeping around the corner at us to whack us with a stick, but a God whose intent is to save us to gather his children close to him, to keep them near him like any loving father would. So how could it then give pleasure to him? In order for him to see his son bruised, because he knew that this was the only way that his name could be glorified that God's righteousness could be justified in his rejection of sin and the sin factory which generates it. That God's love and desire to save mankind and his son in the same process could only occur through the demonstration that sin has to be put to death. And so symbolically, through his empathy and connection with mortality, Christ could relate to all of us sinful individuals. And as a non-sinner, represent us so that when sin was put to death in his life, and finally mortality was put to death, it is death. He could then be resurrected as our representative. So that when we die, to mortality and to sin in our, in, in our baptism and are resurrected to a brand new life through which God saves us. By his knowledge shall Christ save multitudes. It's the knowledge of Yahweh that will fill the earth 
like the waters cover the sea, the knowledge of God. Through his knowledge, what he taught, we have been saved. Not absolutely, it's still conditional on forgiveness, on obedience, on us doing the best we can. And though we fail, relying and casting ourselves on the feet of our Father, of his Son, and trusting that in spite of all of our imperfections and inadequacies as believers, we will be saved and given eternal life. Never because we deserve it, but because it is God's will to save us. It's why he gave us his son. And so it pleased the Lord to bruise, bruise him. He put him to grief. He was an offering for sin. And in the end, the pleasure of the Lord is not in his death, but in the prospering of his work. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the results of what he achieved. When we are all gathered together as his bride, he shall see us and rejoice. Verse 12 says, He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Christ's life and death involved the pouring out of self a self-denial, a removal of pride, a removal of my will as opposed to yours. Thy will be done, he said, as he poured himself out. We're made in the image of God. Christ was made in the image of God. He had power that we cannot imagine while he was on the earth as a human being. But he didn't use that power to grab something for himself, like some kind of prize that a person grabs out of a box or out of someone's hand or fruit off a tree so that he could somehow have the kind of power that God has and demonstrated his power to mankind. All of that would have been about pride, about self. Instead, he emptied himself. Then we look at the last of the songs of the suffering servant, of God's servant. And here's what he says. It's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me. And that would be fulfilled by Christ. He himself would say, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And Luke 4 verses 17 to 21, where he reads this, it's quoted, and he talks about its fulfillment. The bread and the wine don't just talk about suffering and death. They talk about rejoicing. They talk about resurrection. They remind us that the Lord is not dead. He is alive. That our faith must not be tied to something that is dead, but to his life. His death was necessary, but we rejoice and we take comfort in. We're uplifted by and encouraged through his life. 
the life that he lives now. He goes on and he says, I was sent to bind up those who are brokenhearted, not to berate them, to bind them up, to proclaim liberty to those that are the captives of sin and death. And the opening of the prison of this life, of the burdensome existence that we have today, the prison of our flesh and what we are by nature, where it drives us, to open the prison of, to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord. What does that mean? It's a year in which God takes pleasure, delight, and favor. It reminds us, doesn't it, of that period of time in which rejoicing would occur every seventh year in, in Israel's history. And then there was the jubilee year of tremendous rejoicing. Then there would be those times of celebration like the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time that is the acceptable year of the Lord. What's this talking about? It's the year of salvation. There when God saves his people out of sin and death and they receive eternal life to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God against sin and death. It will happen when those things are removed from us. It will happen when the nations against their will sometimes are brought into submission to God. It will be the time when vengeance against that religious harlot occurs. Great Babylon will sink into the sea and be drowned with everything she stood for. The acceptable year of the Lord. A time of delight for him and a time of vengeance against those who have oppressed the poor, the downtrodden, and his people. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise. And from there we go, from that garment of praise in verse 3 to verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, Christ says. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom. Remember the bride. In Revelation 19, who it was given that she could clothe herself with fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteous acts of the saints. What is she clothed with? A lifestyle. Today we are putting on our wedding dress. Today as we eat this bread, we are putting on our wedding dress. By Sewing, weaving, putting together that garment of righteousness that we shall be found with in God's kingdom. And at the same time as there is that acceptable year of the Lord for us and the clothing with our garment and the clothing with immortality, we shall go out with him to fight. Horses, that accompany the man clothed in a garment that is covered in blood with a sword of righteousness and truth in his mouth. 
That's what Revelation 19 tells us. A beautiful picture. A robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, he says, decketh himself with a garland, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. But we're not going to end here. We're going to end in Philippians chapter 2. And then, then we'll be at the end of our words. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. Counted it not a prize. To be equal with God. It wasn't something that he thought to grab with the power that he had. To force that equality with the angels, with God. But, the revised version says, emptied himself. Emptied himself. Taking the form of a bond servant being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself becoming obedient even unto death yea the death of the cross wherefore also God hath highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. As we, we bend our knees literally or figuratively this morning, let's remember that's a part of of our prayer that the Lord will return and all knees in the earth will bow to him that the animal kingdom trees the sky, clouds everything will rejoice and praise the Lord Jesus Christ who is despised rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he was like you and me in our sin. He loves you and he gave his life for you. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord, a time of rejoicing for us, brothers and sisters. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, 
Most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.